and welcome back. We are your hosts. I'm Hannah. And I'm Lexi. And you are listening to Wild About Conservation. If you're new here, welcome. This is the podcast where we get to explore the world of conservation through discussions with our very knowledgeable guests. And this season focuses on the coastal environment, from rivers through to estuaries and back out to our ocean. We have it all this season. Today we spoke to Dagmar Devedeven, who is a PhD student at the University of St Andrews. She studies social learning and group dynamics in Archerfish, which means she spends an awful lot of time in the lab getting spat at by fish. We dive deep into the Archerfish species, what they are, where they live, and what they do. This is an awesome species that show the potential for social learning from one another, which is just one of the questions Dagmar is looking at for her research. This is a fantastic episode if you want to learn more about this tropical fish and some of the questions that researchers have to think about before delving further into a topic. We hope you enjoy listening to this podcast. Please remember to leave a review. We do read them all. Get in touch on social media. And if you would like to support us as creators, we do have a Patreon. Check out all of the links in the show notes, on our website, or the description below. So sit back and enjoy. guest on our podcast and chatting to us today. Firstly, can you tell us your name, your pronouns and the country that you're based in? Uh, yes, hi, thanks so much for having me. My name is Dagmar Der Weidwen. Uh I use she, her pronouns and I'm based in Scotland in St Andrews. Fabulous, lovely part of the world. Thank you and welcome once again Dagmar. Um, thank you for introducing yourself. We're looking forward to chatting to you today about your subject um but firstly could you give us a quick overview about what it is and introduce your key interest in conservation yes yeah, so i'm a phd student at the university of st andrews and i study social learning and imitation in archerfish which are tropical fish uh, that live throughout uh, southeast and south asia my main interest in conservation is a more ecological standpoint so i study these fish in the lab to try to discover you know, what's interesting about them, what's unique about them, and then use that information to try and explain to people why it's important to conserve species, even ones they might not be very aware of, um, or less charismatic species. Thank you for that wonderful introduction, Dagmar, and we're super looking forward to exploring the world of Archerfish with you and discovering some species that, I yeah, I agree, I don't think many people know very much about at all. Before we do that, we have a short game that is just a couple of quick fire questions to keep you on your toes and settle you in. It's the one thing we didn't tell you before you came on the podcast. So the first question is, if you could live in any habitat, what would it be? Um, I think I would love to live in like a tide pool environment, um, you know, like tidal zone. Hmm, nice. I'm going for cozy but extreme sometimes yes. <laughs> and if you had to say what was your one best professional skill bit of a hard one what would it be um honestly I think it's tube feeding pigeons <laughs> I did not expect that but I love it <laughs> I never get to bring that up but I'm very good at tube feeding birds I have to ask more now this is supposed to be quick fire but <laughs> Like, you do a lot of tube feeding birds? <laughs> I used to. When I was a, a teenager, I worked at an animal rehabilitation center. Um, and I was one of the few, like, volunteers who wasn't also a vet who got to do a lot of, like, the tube feeding and things because I was so good mm. at it. So, haven't done it for a while now. 
That's an excellent life skill. Um, and finally, something you love that has absolutely nothing to do with conservation. Though oh, most things do. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Lord of the Rings? Yes. Nothing to do with conservation. So cool. You were right in there with that answer. You didn't even let Hannah really finish the question. You were like, yeah, I've got this. I know myself so well here. And you know what? I'm here for it. I love the I love the culture around it. The, yeah. yeah, love it. Okay, right. Yeah. We're going to move on. From it's Lord been on my Rings, mind so. even more so than usual lately. So, Have you recently watched it, read it, or are you just looking forward to the new things that are going to be coming out? No, it's it's more just because I'm in, in Scotland thinking about the amazing environment and how I want to go to New Zealand. and It's kind of similar, I guess. Mm. Oh, absolutely. Listening to music that reminds me of Lord of the Rings. To be fair, the Lord of the Rings soundtrack, when you need like a good study session, is oh, it, yeah. it gives the epic vibes that feels like you're going to get it done. And you just have to. You have to. The music says you have to. Right, we're getting yes. derailed already tidy. by Lord of the Rings. <laughs> I have two questions for you, Dagmar. The first mm-hmm. is, we're starting this season by asking all of our guests what their favourite sustainable swap is. We've had a few different things from um, shampoo bars to, you know, your reusable water bottles. So do you have your favourite sustainable sh- swap that you would like to share with us? Um, yeah, so I've been trying out a few different kinds of um, plastic-free like toothpaste recently. So I tried a, a powdered toothpaste uh, first, which was okay, but then I'd always spill the powder and it kind of looked like I'd been doing drugs because I'd have like <laughs> white powder everywhere. <laughs> and now I have from the same brand. Uh, it's like a like a paste instead, but it comes in a little glass jar. So you mm. just like scoop a little up every time. And um, yeah, it just, I feel like it lasts way longer than the tubes as well. And like, I'll be able to get everything out, which is always a problem with, with those tubes. I feel there's always something left in there. Um, and it it tastes better, I think, than tube toothpaste. Um, so I think, yeah, that's that's been my favorite recently. I love that. I haven't actually gone into the world of toothpaste yet. I've managed to toothbrushes and a few other things in the bathroom, but I haven't delved yep. into the world of sustainable swap toothpaste edition. Yeah. So I might I've be been... coming to you for some suggestions. Yeah, yeah. Oh, like all of my most well, most of my sustainable swaps have been in the in the bathroom area because my flatmate's doing a lot of the kitchen stuff. Uh, didn't organize this. It's just happened this way. So I've got like. <laughs> Plastic-free mascara, like plastic-free shampoo, like toothbrushes, everything. Um, it's just, it's just so nice. Oh, that sounds amazing. I just want to see your bathroom. And finally, uh, we always ask our guests how they get wild about conservation. So this can range from taking a walk outside to go into a wildlife charity to reading a book. But I would like to know, Dagmar, how you get wild about conservation. Um. I think most of it is going to have to be, you know, going outside and just uh, St. Andrews. I'm very lucky that, you know, I'm really close to the beach and really close to these amazing like cliff environments. It's really easy to get out to the highlands and there's just so much like incredible nature all around. But then at the same time, you can see like the impact that people have on that environment. Um, so yeah, just, you know, walking around town or just, you know, going up uh, along the beach, along the coastal path here and you can see so much wildlife and plant life and all these incredible things. But then at the same time, you'll see like garbage everywhere. So I think that's really where, you know, where it gets me, where it reminds me like, oh, yeah, this is super important that we do this. Mm. 
I can definitely sympathize with that last note you said there because this lunchtime I was like, I'm going to take a walk with my lunch. And then as I was walking to my local park, I was like, there's just trash everywhere. Yep. And I already like I organized beach clean and stuff. I was like, maybe maybe I don't need to add this to my plate, but maybe I, I just want to come and do some walks and just lit a bit here because I have all the yep. equipment because it is. Yeah, sadly, that is the way. But it's also, you know, enjoying what is out there. And absolutely. Yes. So well, yeah. So diving into you and your work. My first kind of question, really focusing on this now, was what actually got you into conservation in the first place? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I think it just stems from my, my love of biology in general, which I've had since I was very little. Um, and I've been lucky enough, uh, due to my parents' work, that I've lived in uh, six different countries now, in a lot of different environments. So I lived in uh, in the desert, essentially in Jerusalem. Uh, we spent a lot of time, you know, going around discovering wow. nature there. I lived in Kenya for four years, um, which has, you know, so many different types of habitat in it. Um, actually, I remember going on a school trip in Kenya and we visited this like turtle sanctuary where mm -hmm. they'd take, they'd bring in injured turtles and, you know, try to get them back to health. And there was one turtle that had ingested a lot of plastic and it was just floating motionless because it couldn't swim anymore. Uh, they were hoping, you know, to raise money for surgery to remove the plastic so it could maybe recover. Um, and I think that was like the first time it really hit me. I think I was 12 or 13. You know, there's so much, so many things that we've ruined, but that we can also try to fix. Mm. And then when I ended up working at that that wildlife rehabilitation center uh, that I mentioned that was in New York, uh, New York City. So, you know, there's not a lot of nature there. Um, and we get in mostly pigeons, but occasionally, you know, incredible songbirds and, you know, just all these like cool animals. And you're seeing the amount of people who work there who are also really passionate about helping these these animals, which most people would just, you know, most people don't care about city pigeons. But, mm. you know, it made me realize how much worth all animal life has and that I'm not the only person who thinks that. Um so yeah, I didn't go into biology specifically to focus on conservation, but it's definitely been like in the back of my mind, you know, how can I apply the work I'm doing to conservation and to, you know, making people as passionate about these animals and their their health and safety as, as I am. I think that's amazing. And the way that you've already mentioned that you're looking at your entire PhD more from an ecological standpoint in the fact that every animal every species has its role to play in, within the environment and we just have to find that to figure out their worth and then realize that everything is worth saving um yeah. so yeah i really i really appreciate that your answer is very honest there and that you are very much more scientifically focused but i think that that is really really nice to hear um but yeah, can you tell us a little bit about your academic career so far? So you've obviously ended up as a PhD candidate at the University of St. Andrews, but what got you there? You've obviously visited a fair few countries in your time, but tell us about yep. school onwards. There we go. So as much as I was interested in biology back in like high school, I did want to be a vet. Um, and I think you know, part of my mind was like, it could be a wildlife vet, it'll be super cool. Uh, and then I didn't get into vet school because mm. that's really hard. So instead, I'd also applied to biology um, courses and I ended up at the University of Edinburgh um, to study ecology. And within like the first year, I realized that I probably enjoyed that way more than I would have enjoyed being a vet because, 
you know, I get to, you know, learn all these really cool biological concepts. And I'm not saying like being a vet's boring or anything. I just think for me, it wouldn't have been the right choice. Um, and then I got at the end of my first year, second year, second year, um, I ended up doing uh, some field work, helping um, a guy at the university there with a project he had studying blue tits um, mm -hmm. throughout Scotland. So he had 44 field sites between Edinburgh and Tane, which is up past Inverness. So about, I think, 250 kilometer transect. And he was studying, you know, like the nesting behavior and the, the phonology of these birds. So how they're nesting timed with uh, caterpillar peaks and with uh, tree um, leaves, uh, you know, opening kind of to like mimic climate change effects because he was looking at it on such a large like scale. Mm -hmm. And it was just so cool, you know, getting to drive around and visit all these laybys essentially and just along <laughs> the side of the road but you just walk off into the woods slightly and suddenly you know there'd be deer and red squirrels and lots of birds and everything and it was just incredible um so i ended up working with him for three summers and doing my undergraduate dissertation on those blue tits on um the insulation of their nests and seeing if there was a difference between the nests from the more southern sites and the more northern sites that experiment ended up failing massively because the temperature loggers I used were getting old and we didn't realize the batteries were failing. So, you know, it's like heating the temperature probes up and putting them in a nest to see how fast they cool down. Halfway through, all of them just died. Aww. So instead, I ended up uh, and I have now published um, my thesis, which then focused on differences in nest height, uh, sort of as a proxy for, you know, insulation and those kinds of things. Um, and differences between the sites and I just really really enjoyed working with the animals but part of me was thinking you know I don't want to go into biology and just work with animals I kind of want to see what it's like to work with plants too mm -hmm. so for my master's I applied to uh, a research master's position here at the University of St Andrews um, and I emailed this guy about a project he'd advertised looking at, I think it was mimicry and predation in like caterpillars or something. Hmm. And he emailed me back with like 10 other project ideas of things I could do, um, <laughs> which is kind of his whole like thing. He, he just works on literally everything from like physics to paleobiology, but happens to be mostly a biologist. And he t proposed this one project on seed dispersal of sycamore seeds. Um, and I was like, oh, that sounds cool. You know, let's do that for a year. Uh, and essentially I spent a year counting seeds and taking pictures of seeds, you know, like the little helicopter seeds, because mm. um, there's been a lot of research on them, but most of it's like the physics of how they come off the tree and then fall on the ground. And then once they're on the ground, everyone was like, yeah, that's probably where they'll stay for the rest of the time. And that's not really true. And, like, the wing of the seed has a lot of, like, impact on the actual life of the seed itself. And so I was looking at um, at that phase after the seed had landed on the ground. Um, and it was really fun, but I did miss working with animals. So when I saw a PhD project advertised working with Archerfish by the guy whose desk I sat, or whose um, office I sat next to in St. Andrews, I was like, well, I gotta go talk to this guy.
<laughs> and that's how I ended up doing my PhD. I love that. And that's so interesting. All of those different, like, yeah, putting your toe in, figuring out that's not for you. Yeah. You know, also you touched on what happens when research goes wrong, <laughs> which is part of research, but can be incredibly stressful. And like fair yeah. play that, you know, you worked around it. Now you have a publication. That's amazing exactly. to hear. And yeah, just listening, you can hear your passion for like discovering these things and, you know, just observing the world around you. So yeah, yeah amazing and super excited to be chatting about Artificial with you. Yeah. So just to kind of take that a step further, it sounds like you've had a pretty kind of semi-linear track through academia to where you are now yeah. has there been any other like internships you've mentioned already that you worked in the rehabilitation center when you were younger so yeah anything like that you want to take us through just as we get to know you yeah so this was um when I was an undergrad I ended up getting a job with an ecological consultancy mm-hmm. um in and around Edinburgh this guy uh, mostly employed students and you know he got like his team members to basically recruit new people for him when they left um, and his consultancy mostly focused on bats. So I ended up uh, traveling across Northern England and Scotland um, in the summers uh, doing bat surveys uh, with this guy, um, which was really fun because I don't know a lot about bats, but, you know, we would stand there with like your little like bat detectors that pick up their um, their calls, with, like earpieces to listen in. And we'd have like walkie talkies so we could communicate with each other. Like, oh, did you see that bat? Yeah, I saw that bat. And, <laughs> Uh, people would always ask us if we were ghost busting. So it was <laughs> <laughs> it was like a lot of fun because it was a really good team to be a part of, but also a really good experience because it's not an animal that is easy, you know, to s- just work with out of nowhere. Uh, and this guy was really good about, um, you know, like educating us on why we were doing things and the importance of bat conservation because, you know, that's what doing bat surveys is mostly about, uh, making sure that they don't, die when people you know change up their attic or something um so i learned a lot about bats there which yeah it was just an accident that that i ended up there really but really good fun that sounds like an amazing job to have whilst at uni whilst you're doing Mm. a course in ecology because i did a similar job just after my master's degree and i i i completely agree with you it was just a bunch of fun because it's not you have to be a a certain type of person to do bat surveys because they often go usually either from dusk onwards or early dawn to dawn not many people want to hang out that time of night looking at the sky but it's really fun to do it and you just have to wear a lot of layers because it's quite cold (laughs) yeah yeah Yeah, you know like getting up at midnight to go drive to Northumberland to get there for 3 a.m isn't it's not for everyone no but then like you see bats and hedgehogs and like other like nightlife animals and yeah, I used to have a separate um, note on my phone where I just noted all the other wildlife that I saw on these surveys just in case they wanted it. They did. Yeah. And we all talked about it afterwards. But yeah, it was it was a very fun job. So I definitely um, I understand where you're coming from with saying it was a really cool job to have at uni. Um, but your topic of interest that we're talking about today is archerfish. We've already mentioned them a little bit and that most people probably don't know what they are. So the biggest question of today, what is an archerfish? Archerfish are any fish from the, uh, let me get this right, I think it's the family Toxotidae, um, which is, it is one genus, uh, which is Toxotus, um, and there are 10 species within this, and they are tropical fish um, that live anywhere from like Sri Lanka and India all the way across the Southeast Asia up to China and down mm-hmm. in Australia. 
They are mostly freshwater and brackish species. They live in mangrove forests a lot of the times, uh, and also, you know, rivers, uh, more tidal zones for the brackish um, individuals. Uh, and their whole shtick is that they spit jets of water out of their mouth at insects that are above the water surface. Uh, and that's like one of their main hunting methods. So if a archerfish spits water, which sounds mad to me, at mm-hmm. an insect outside the water, then what happens to that insect? Um, so usually, if they hit it right, it'll get knocked down into the water uh, so the archerfish can eat it. So their aim's got to be pretty good. They can hit a target up to two meters away. Um, Excuse me? <laughs> these, fish, these fish aren't that large also. I think they're usually like... The little ones will be, you know, like seven, eight centimeters up to about 20 centimeters. Um, one species can reach up to like 40 centimeters in the wild. I've never seen oh, that. Wow. Um, but still, you know, even the little ones can hit. The ones I have in the lab are probably 10 centimeters and like they've mm. hit the ceiling before, which is <laughs> about two meters up. So how do they actually like see and time that? Because obviously that's a whole got to be a whole mechanism on its own. Yeah. So um. Yeah. They are looking through the water barrier. So you know, like if you've you've been in a pool or in the sea and you look through the water when you're underwater, it's there's a lot of like um refraction, mm-hmm. and we don't actually know how the archerfish deal with this because where they're aiming at, like the insect, the insect's not actually in that location. It it's somewhere else. It just looks like it's there, right? Yeah. And we have no idea how they adapt for this, but somehow they do. Um, and they're actually, they're so incredible that um, even though they don't, they can hit these these flies and then the fly will start falling. And as soon as the, the insect starts falling, the fish will kind of calculate where it's going to land and the speed it needs to use to get there. So they'll get to the insect like at the time that it hits the water. So they're, do- and they're doing all of this through that water barrier. And I'm, I'm not like a physiologist. I don't know how their eyes work, but no one knows how their eyes work at this point. So are archerfish like grouped fish? Do they live in groups or do they or do they hunt in groups? So is it really important that they get to that fallen insect at the right time so they get their, their catch or do they hunt alone? So they're facultatively social, so they don't live in groups, okay. but they are often found in groups. Uh, so yes, it is very important they get to the food first. Um, and they've actually, so a lot of fish have this mechanism called a predictive sea start, which is an escape mechanism that basically if a fish gets startled, it'll bend its body like into a C shape to quickly change direction and bolt. And the archer fish use this predictive sea start in order to quickly change direction and reach the food. Um, oh, wow. So... Yeah, they can live in groups and there's often other fish around as well. Uh, there's these incredible fish um, which are like um, live in the same you know places as archerfish called half beaks and they can actually sense vibrations on the water so they can feel when an insect hits the water surface. Um, so it's like one of their main you know competitors in the wild. Um, so these archerfish really need to be quick in order to get the food first because otherwise. You know, it does take it out of you a little bit to spit water at something. Um, so you want to be the one that gets the food then. Yeah, you don't want to be the one that kind of spits spits the food, spits the water, and then 
someone else gets the food and then you're like, yeah. oh, now I have to spit it again because I already yes. had to do that energy and now I have to move for that energy. And yeah, that just sounds like so much. Yeah. Yeah. So you've mentioned that they're kind of brackish, rivery, yeah. um, sometimes mangroves. So do they live kind of mid-river or do they live in the mangroves? Do, do we know much about that? So there's not that much known about most of these species in the wild. It's actually two of these species were only discovered to be separate species from like a third species in 2018. Um, so there's just in the wild, there hasn't been that much research on them. Mm. They do really like mangroves just because there's so many overhanging branches, uh, which means there's lots of insects sitting on those branches. Mm. They can hit moving targets, but I think it's only been shown in the lab so far after a bunch of training. So I don't know if they do that in the wild. <laughs> so, you know, having a branch with an insect on it is probably easier. Um, they do, I think all I can say really about where to find them is they do tend to hang around near the surface mm -hmm. um, just because they aim from directly below the surface. But I, I can't say where, you know, in the river or in the, in the wild you'd find them specifically. It's just kind of nice to have an idea of what kind of environment they live in because I had yeah. no idea. Um, yeah. So do you know anything about their mode of reproduction? How do archfish make more archfish? Um, this is also a mystery for a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of it we just don't know. Um, they do spawn, so we know that much. Um, but they think only one of the species has been bred in captivity, and it's only happened once. And, you know, for some of this, like the more brackish species, they think there might be a life cycle where the baby archerfish will live at sea. But we don't know. Um, and again, it's just there's just a lack of observations in the wild. You know, we could go and ask some some locals somewhere where archerfish live and they might know, but mm -hmm. no one's done that yet. Um, so to science at the moment, they're spawning. Um, it's a bit of a mystery, uh, which sucks. I'd love to be able to breed them in the lab because... Currently, we have to get them flown in from the wild, which, um, you know, be better if we could breed them. So just can you give us an overview of what spawning is in this reproductive context? Um, so I know, at least for one of the species, so for the Toxotus chatoreus, which is possibly the most well-known, uh, it's called the, the common archerfish or the seven-spot archerfish. Um, I think the females are thought to spawn only once a year uh although you know each fish will spawn multiple times in its life uh it seems to be happening like in the wet seasons when there's more water around but the Tuxedus chatoreas are capable of living in both brackish and fresh water so it could happen in either of those um or possibly both yeah i think the females just you know they'd lay you know thousands and thousands of eggs the, the spawning really is just mostly a mystery yeah that's really fascinating how much we don't know about so many animals and like you know just these basic life trait things like mm -hmm. how where did the eggs go where did they yeah. lay them how do they mm -hmm. lay them so you mentioned that they're coming from the wild um yeah. the ones that you have in the lab mm -hmm. and the little bit i do know about artificials i think people also keep them as pets am i right yeah, you can keep them as pets. Um, definitely do not recommend them for, you know, beginning fish keepers. Um, mm. They can be a bit tricky. They're pretty hardy. 
Um, we've got we've had three different species in the lab, um, and they are all you know you can slowly acclimatize them to either fresh or brackish water. Um, they you know they do fine with either. Um, according to and this is an issue I have with Wikipedia. According to the Wikipedia pages for the couple of the species where there's more information, they say they have to be fed live food. That's not entirely true. Uh, we feed them pellet food, and then occasionally they'll get crickets when there's crickets left over from the cricket lab across the way. Um, which they do, they love live food. They really, mm. really do. They're not going to die if you don't feed it to them. <laughs> um, they are, because, you know, they're not just going to start spitting out of nowhere. You do kind of have to train them, and you have to train them regularly. So I think, you know, that's why people want them as pets, because it's a really cool thing they do. You do have to be dedicated to it, um, to, you know, training them. It's like training a dog, except you have to keep doing it because otherwise they'll just stop. I've just got this image of somebody having a pet archerfish and them just randomly spitting at insects in the house. Mm-hmm. And that's not something you want, to be fair. I no. don't want to be cleaning up like fish spit from my ceiling. I mean, it's not spit. It is just the tank water. But yeah, you still don't want to be cleaning it up from the ceiling. Um, I've had in the lab, because we do, and this is another very important thing, if you do keep them as pets, they can jump very high. So you definitely need to cover the tanks. Um, because And they can get through like tiny cracks. Uh, so, you know, if it's like their body width, they'll find a way to jump through it and then you'll find a dead fish somewhere later. Cause, um... But because we keep, you know, all of the tanks covered in the lab, sometimes there are just, like, absolutely tiny cracks of, like, one or two centimeters that they can't jump through. And some of the fish have spat through cracks of that size to hit me in the face when they think I'm either being too slow at feeding them or that I haven't given them enough food. Which they always think, both of those things, I think. So they're very greedy. Do they spit? Not just to get food. Do they spit for other reasons? No, they spit just to get food. But um, these fish, they can actually recognize individual humans. And they recognize me as the person who feeds them. So they also know that if they spit at me, I might drop food. Um, uh. And I think they know that if they spit in my eyes, I might be blinded and drop more food. I don't know that for <laughs> sure, but they do aim for my eyes a lot. That's really fascinating because it's this kind of like you've you touched on something that's so core to a lot of studies that have animals um, is the animal husbandry, you know, looking after these creatures. But the challenges of that, the things yeah. people don't expect, like you hear lots of funny stories about octopus and them throwing things at keepers or like the, the lab technicians, like finding fish missing from another tank because an octopus has gone and stolen them and things like that. So it's really fun listening to your own experiences of yeah these creatures and yeah. like kind of the intelligence that's come from them observing what's going on around them uh, absolutely. it's just fascinating absolutely and like these fish they i think if you're going to keep them at home they do they don't just eat insects they mm. can eat smaller fish so you know we don't keep them, we only keep them with other archer fish we've got some archer fish that are smaller than others we don't keep them with the larger ones cuz because they're not you know a social species necessarily you know, I've got one tank with archer fish that are just missing bits of fins everywhere because they can be aggressive to each other. Um, and we sometimes just shake up which fish is kept in which tank just to, you know, stop the bullies from 
bullying. We have mm. one fish that we just can't keep with other archer fish because he bullies everyone. So he's just off on his own. He can see all the other fish, you know, he's not lonely. But he's a bit of a danger to the other archer fish and we can't have that. He's a really good shooter. His name is Mr. Grumpy. Do you do you name them all? <laughs> I do. It's mostly for identification purposes. Um, because they all have like slightly different markings. So I have like pictures of each of them. But then just giving them numbers is kind of boring. So I named them all after fictional and mythological archers. Except for Mr. Grumpy. Because he's special. I understand. Yes. <laughs> A special type of grump. Yeah, no, the project I worked on, the turtles were all named after gods of various areas. It wasn't just... I love that. Yeah, it wasn't just marine or like... I was in Mexico, so it wasn't just Mexican gods. It was just gods in general. Um, I love that. Something I was going to ask as a follow-up, because I know... So flashing back now massively to the Nemo effect and kind of when Finding Nemo came out, everyone was like, ooh, Finding Nemo fish, we want them. And that created a drive for really researching their reproduction so that they could be cultured or reproduced in a lab Mm -hmm. um, rather than going and taking them from the wild. So is there quite a lot of research then? Because as you said, there's not much known about how they spawn and how they reproduce. So is there work going on to kind of culture them in labs for the pet trade? Um, I don't think so much for the pet trade. I know there's, I think there's a place in Australia where they've been trying to breed them. And I think that's the place that's been successful once, but mm. never again. Um, we have a, a, a lab we collaborate with in Germany that does, that has been trying to breed them um, to look, they do more like neurology work as well. So, you know, obviously that comes with, they need a few more fish than we do. Let's mm -hmm. put it that mm. way. Um, and I think they've managed to get the the larva to about 15 days and then something happens and they all die. And they're trying to get past that barrier and they just don't know, you know, it could be the salinity, it could be the temperature, it could be the food, and they just have no idea. But there are places trying to breed them. I just think, I don't think they're particularly popular as pets. Mm. Um, and I think that might be, you know, they can get quite large. Uh, they can be a bit tricky. They don't just do what people want them to do, you know, straight off the bat. Um, and honestly, I really like Archerfish. It's probably best if they don't become too popular as pets, especially because of the breeding issues. And and I'm sure we'll get into this because we don't know a lot about their conservation status. So, you know, suddenly the people starting taking them from the wilds you know, in massive amounts wouldn't be very good. Yeah. There's a few labs in the world that work with archerfish, but, you know, we get 10 fish at a time. Um, and then we use them for years. So, you know, it's not like I'm getting a shipment of archerfish every week. Yeah, that makes sense. Because my next question was going to be, are they at risk? Like, do we know much about their conservation status? But you've already mentioned that there's so much we don't know yeah. about archerfish. So, so what? Where where are we falling with that knowledge? So I think, and I did have a look at the IUCN Red List because, you know, it's my favorite resource for these things. Mm. Um, and they've only got six species of archerfish actually listed out of the 10. And only two of them uh, aren't, uh, don't have an unknown status. Uh, so it's the, the Toxodus chatoreus and the Toxodus lorenzi are both listed as stable. Um, but I, the lorenzi was only discovered in 2018. So I don't know 
how they're so sure about that. They might be, but I couldn't very quickly find, you know, where this this assessment is coming from. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe there's a massive population, you know, out there, but it could be that they only live in one river, and then that's a whole different issue. Um. So yeah, most of these species, we just have absolutely no idea how at risk they might be, or what particular risks they could be facing. That's really interesting, considering they live in a range of environments, and we don't have the information about where they are, that we can't really overarchingly say what we can do to protect them. Yeah, I think even the species distributions... You know, we do know, like, oh, this species is in Australia and, like, northwestern Australia. This one's in mm-hmm. Sri Lanka. But I don't know how accurate the range reports are and, you know, how recent, how often they get updated. Because it's not it's not a species or a, a genus you hear a lot about. Yeah, I agree. So before we get into your PhD topic and mm-hmm. a lot more about the research that you're doing, what is your yep. favorite arch of archerfish fact that we haven't mentioned yet because I know you've mentioned loads and I got really excited and we ran through these questions really like chaotically but I loved it Mm. (laughs) see I've mentioned that they can recognize humans that's usually my go-to but favorite archerfish fact I think it's gonna be I'll elaborate on the the hitting of the moving targets because that is partially what my PhD is being based on um but I'm probably not going to be able to get to that in my research uh, but this lab in Germany in 2006 trained archerfish to hit moving targets, which hadn't been shown before. Um, and they meant to train a whole tank of fish, but then they actually only trained one because this fish was so dominant and aggressive that it wouldn't let the other fish near the target. Um, and then the researchers decided to... Not really as part of you know what they'd set out to do, but they they tested the other archerfish that had been in the tank with the same moving targets, and they were hitting the moving targets um, with the same rate of success as the trained fish had been at the end of the experiment. So at the start of the experiment, that fish hadn't been very good at all. Mm-hmm. By the end, it was hitting it pretty consistently, and then the fish that had just been observing this were hitting it at that more consistent rate. Which is just, and you know, this is going into my my own PhD research, but that's the kind of behavior that people don't expect from fish. They don't expect to see that kind of observational learning. Um, so, you know, I don't want to say, you know, let's stick it to the primatologists, but just maybe, maybe there's some other animals that can do some really complex learning. That's really fascinating how, yeah, it was, it was, kind of I guess the step further you would take would be then comparing it to the ones that didn't do it at all or had never been exposed to see where that goes um so talking about your PhD a day in your life Dachma I know as a PhD student myself every day is different but if you had to give us like an overview what would that be um so I do spend a lot of time um in the lab um and in just the office um so every week, at least, I do like water checks, uh, topping up tanks when they need to be topped up. I feed the fish every day, Monday through Friday. Uh, sometimes I go in on the weekends to check that all the fish are alive. But we have a schedule for that with everyone else who uses the lab. So I don't have to do it every weekend, thankfully. Um, and yeah, it's a lot of um, 
cleaning tanks, filling up buckets of water with dirty water, pouring it out, putting fresh water in the buckets, putting that water back in. Um, a lot of juggling buckets. Uh, sometimes I flood the lab. It happens <laughs> maybe once every two weeks. It's fine. There's a drain in the floor, but there's just a lot of water everywhere. Um, then when I'm completely soaked with dirty algae water, I'll change out of my lab clothes and into my normal clothes again. Um, probably go upstairs and analyze some data. That's been a lot of what I've been doing recently, uh, partially because of COVID, uh, not being able to access the lab as much. Um, so a lot of, uh, we record every experiment we do. So it's a lot of video analysis, um, mm. you know, to get the actual usable data. Um, or working at the moment on um, uh, automatic feeder system that responds when the fish spit at it, um, which is for my next experiment, which will essentially, Hannah, be doing what you just suggested. Um, so I'll have that automated feeder with a fake target attached to it as well that looks identical, mm. except like for color or something like that. Um, and then seeing if I train one fish and let a bunch of other fish observe, will they be able to hit the right targets? And then will a bunch of fish who don't know what target to hit also hit the right target? So. Oh, wow. That's that observational learning. Incredible. Right. Okay. I'm just going to take us back one step here, though. Yep. So your PhD is in the social learning and group dynamics of archerfish. But can yes. you give us an overview of the research questions you're looking at? You've already told us what some of your yep. research is, but just, just to like... Yep. Paint a picture. So, essentially, what I'm trying to do is determine if archerfish are a good like model genus for doing social learning research, um, which requires us to know more about their group dynamics because we don't know a lot of that. So, one of the main questions um, from the previous PhD student had been, you know, do archerfish, how do they respond to an audience? Um, and we found out, you know, they respond quite quite a lot like they know when they're being watched by another fish and they change their behavior um when they're spitting because it's you know it's competition so my questions so far have been um does their actual success of shooting is that affected by how many fish are around them because if there's more fish around you you make more changes to your own behavior because you're under more observation does that affect how successful you're going to be at hunting um and that research is hopefully coming out soon. But then going into the social learning aspect, um, my first question that I needed to figure out is, um, can archerfish recognize other archerfish on video? Um, and that's because training a fish to do a certain behavior and then using that fish as a demonstrator for others can be difficult because they change their behavior when they're under observation. Mm -hmm. So my thought was, if I can have a video of a fish doing a behavior and other fish can watch that, you know, then that takes out that, that change in behavior when the demonstrator's under observation. Um, so I'm currently working with that data. Um, and then next will be, can archerfish learn to hit a specific target by observing a demonstrator? Um, which I will be doing both like of the live demonstrator and then maybe a video demonstrator as well. Um, and I would love to also get more into the neurology of how they actually, you know, do this potential learning from one another. But I first need to determine, can they learn from one another? Um, 
And if they are learning from one another, is it imitation or is it something else? Because imitation is like the holy grail of social learning research. It's considered to be the most complicated um, type of, of social learning because it's, you know, the actual mirroring of a behavior to get the same outcome. Uh, and so far people think like, oh, you know, it's just humans can do that. Or just humans and apes. Maybe a crow can do it. But no one thinks about fish being able to do it. And I think there's a possibility they can. So. Wow, that's so interesting. And it's like super exciting to see where all this is going to go. Because like you said, it's something that people don't necessarily like think about fish and yeah. all of this kind of social intelligence. Because the things you're saying also reminds me of the stuff we've learnt about when it comes to things like octopus or yep. um, cuttlefish. So on the back of some of the things you said, you mentioned that they change their behaviours when they're being watched. Yep. What do you mean by that? Like, what are these behaviour changes? And you said they keep they keep changing. So I guess, can we yep. go through the scales of change? Or like, is it like tick boxes? <laughs> I guess it's, it's scales, but scales of change, but it depends on the individual. So each archerfish does have its own personality as well. Um, you've got uh, some fish which which spend longer aiming just in general. You know, sometimes they, they tend to be a bit more accurate at certain tasks if they spend longer observing the task first. Uh, you have fish which are, you know, more rapid shooters that might miss a little bit more. Um, you've got, we don't know a lot about like their social dynamics, mm. um, but in the tanks I've just observed, you've got some fish that are just a bit more dominant than others. I just don't have proof to say, you know, this is why one's going to be more dominant. Um, it could be, it could be a sex difference as well, because they, they're sexually monomorphic and we can only, you know, we can't tell them apart. Um, no one's ever done a study, you know, telling the males and females apart. So there could be a whole separate dynamic there. But basically, um, the fish tend to spend longer before they shoot if they know they're being watched. Hmm. Um, and they actually don't change, that doesn't change um, their success. So and this was my latest uh, research which is that fish in groups of um, five will actually spend less time aiming than fish in groups of three. And that does not affect how successful their shots are, which is really weird because you'd think if you spend less time aiming, you're more likely to miss. Hmm. But it, it isn't. And it's likely to be some kind of, you know, social dynamic or, you know, they don't want to alert the other fish that, hey, there's food here. Yeah. I wonder energy conservation you have to move quicker more fish yeah it could be that it could be um we're not sure yet we've only just found this out so um but that's that is pretty cool so yeah they definitely they definitely change their behavior they are just more more hesitant to shoot is the main thing and how long does an archer fish kind of spend aiming before <laughs> shooting generally um so i have from this this latest uh, research more than 3,000 shooting event observations and most shots the aiming duration was less than a second uh, everything these fish do is very quick um, so the difference I think between the groups of 3 and the groups of 5 was maybe like 0.6 seconds or something Okay. Um, and like average but a lot of the things these fish do, and you know, like they have tiny brains. Their brains are the size of a grain of rice, if that. Um, everything they do happens in milliseconds. Like the decision where to to swim to when you hit the fly or the insect, 
milliseconds. So that, that the aiming doesn't take that long is not that surprising, but that there is this difference between them then is. Because mm. for them, that's quite a large difference. Just thinking about the social learning, and obviously we've mm-hmm. spoken a lot about the shooting and the spitting of water for food. Is there anything else that is either being researched or has been observed of, that they seem to learn from each other? So most of the research has been going into the the, the spitting. Um, I think just because it, it's such an obvious behavior. So it's mm. quite easy, you know, you can train them to hit a certain color or a certain shape target. And then it's quite easy to tell if the other fisher might be you know, learning from that. I think there's a lab in the US that is definitely doing something with like robot archer fish to see how the fish respond to that. But what their actual goal is, I could not tell you because I've not mm. spoken to them. I think they might be either also interested in, you know, learning the like the spitting behavior, but it could also be something to do more with like group dynamics um, or there could be aggressive contests for all we know. We we don't, you know, maybe there's some kind of like hierarchy where the winner gets the most food or mating, spawning, whatever. We just don't know. Um, so I think most of it so far has been going into the hunting behavior. Hmm. And just to follow up, are the mechanisms of social learning that are generally being studied and observed, is it observation or is there any other type of social learning that you think um, they could learn? So I think a lot of it has been observation. Uh, You know, I'm keeping my fingers crossed for imitation specifically, but that is, it's hard to prove. I'm not gonna, you know, pretend and say I'm definitely gonna prove this in Archerfish, because I don't know. Um, I think, so there could definitely be some kind of um, learning associated possibly with um, like novel object uh, recognition uh, or neophobia. So, you know, I occasionally place like new plants or something in the tank and they, I couldn't say if, you know, one fish might be bolder and then the others become less afraid of the new object. It's definitely possible. We got this, this new siphon that has a little motor in it so we can get water out of, you know, the high tanks and put it back in more easily. And the fish were pretty scared of it at first, but then last time I used it in one of the tanks, one of the fish was just sitting right next to it and did not care at all. And then another kind of came up to it like, oh, okay, maybe this is, you know, okay. So there could be, you know, that kind of more association learning. And again, we don't know this in the wild, but there's definitely the possibility if they do like, you know, migration sort of up and down streams or into brackish water for spawning, maybe there's like a migration route that they learn from each other. I wish I knew that. That's all really interesting, though, because it's that you've kind of touched on so many things of that they live in groups, but there's not really like, or correct me if I'm wrong, there isn't like the group roles or anything like what you would get in a pod of dolphins, for an example, or a pod of orca is probably a better example. But that even then they are still learning from each other. They are possibly somehow reliant on each other's behaviors. But obviously, I say possibly because that's exactly what your research is. So we can't really say whether that is or not. But that's so interesting. No, absolutely. And there's definitely because the the young archer fish do have to they have to improve their shooting. The shooting behavior is something they can do intrinsically. They have the adaptations for it. But learning to aim correctly, you know, you're not going to do that straight up the bat. And there's a lot of theories that it could be that the younger ones observe the older ones, you know, kind of in that 
sort of like teacher student dynamic but it's not actually a teacher student dynamic because the older fish would probably not want the younger ones anywhere near it it just doesn't have that choice um. yeah. <laughs> so stepping away specifically from archer fish now can your yep. research be adapted to use on other fish species so the research on the spitting specifically no archer fish are the only animal like not just fish, but animal that uses uh, a liquid projectile like that that isn't like their own bodily fluid. Um, so uh, definitely not the spitting, but the the learning itself and the group dynamics. So um, yeah, one of our arguments was um, with our our latest research because we didn't find any of the effects we were expecting. You know, we thought success will change with group size and archer fish because they must be changing their behavior. And then they change their behavior and there's no difference in success. But those kinds of like subtle changes in relation to like competition levels probably occur in a lot of other species and not just other fish. So learning to understand, you know, what kind of goes into that and how that might affect hunting success is really important um, for a lot of, a lot of research um, and the learning specifically I think if I can prove that archerfish can learn things from one another, that's definitely going to um, be very important for a lot of other species because it's something that for a very long time people didn't think fish could do because they have tiny brains and because they're not as, you know, like well adapted for those kinds of situations as, you know, people think apes and corvids and things are. Um, so if I can prove that they can learn things from each other, yeah, I think that's going to have hopefully a pretty big impact on how people look at fish, at least, and hopefully inspire research into those kinds of topics in other fish species. Because if archer fish can do it, they're not going to be the only type of fish. It sounds like you're literally at the tip of the iceberg of archer fish, um, yes. which and then for so many more. And it's exciting to think about where this could go. It's been amazing chatting to you and really hearing your passion about mm. artifice and all of these different things. Yeah, like like I said, we like dived in deep straight away, which is what we like. Um, is there anything else you feel that you'd like to add that we haven't covered and you want to chat about? And we can jump into that too. Oh, I don't, I don't think so. Um, I think maybe just reiterate the point that if you do hear this, you know, don't go out and buy an artifice as a pet immediately. Um, do your research. Maybe get a different kind of fish first. I don't have archer fish at home. They're tropical too, so they need like tropical tanks and everything. It's a it's a it's a lot. Um yeah, and maybe just, you know, go out and look up some cool archer fish videos. There's great ones on YouTube. I'm instantly gonna when we finish this recording, gonna check out some more videos of archer fish. Um not that I've done so already. But no, thank you. There's one video from like, I don't know, early 2000s where someone lights a cigarette and then an archerfish spits it out because um, <laughs> they like glowing things. And it's just like, you can never do that nowadays with like, you know, the whole like anti-smoking thing, yeah. which is good to don't smoke. But it's just really funny because you're just not expecting that. Or maybe archerfish were the first like anti-smoking campaigners and we yes. just all had to get on board. Yes. I'm spreading that rumor. <laughs> I have a genuine question off the back of that, of Archerfish not being anti-smoking campaigners. So where you find Archerfish, is there... Bioluminescent organisms? Yeah. Is that 
like do you think there's a link there is, yes. are they in the same places as fireflies and because i at the start of this conversation i thought it was always going to be like moving insects and then you said it's like more stable insects so i guess like yeah fireflies pulsing butt looks a lot like a cigarette so that's really interesting because um i think there definitely will be like bioluminescent insects. I don't know if it's fireflies specifically in some mm. of the places artifish live, but artifish also can't see very well in the dark, which means if you spit <laughs> at a glowing insect and then it stops glowing and falls into the water, you're probably not going to find it. Um, and actually, they don't hunt at night. So I don't know. There must be glowing insects. So maybe they just spit at them because they're like, oh, well, I can see that. And then they get screwed over if the insect then stops glowing <laughs> possibly. possibly i don't know I, ha I haven't seen them in the wild yet so maybe this will be my my research trip to discover oh my god that sounds like a fantastic research like trip just going and observing some archfish to see what they what they get up to with their time yeah. i'd love to do that but no thank you so much for being a guest today and thank you for answering all of our questions so well you've been a fantastic guest on this podcast and dealt with me and Hannah are talking over one another to get to ask you the next question first so I really appreciate that Hannah have you got anything else to add before you do our sign off no thank you so much for chatting to us today Dakma and to our listeners as always thank you so much for listening we will see you again soon and to everyone have a wild day bye, bye. thank you for listening today as always we have been wild about conservation and you have been awesome Please do leave us a review. We would really appreciate it and we read each and every one. To keep exploring with us, drop us an email or find us on our socials. We're on both Twitter and Instagram. All the links are in our description and the show notes. If you enjoy our show and want to support us, we're also on Patreon. Just £1 a month, that's 25p an episode, will cover our creation costs. And anything above that, we just donate it to charity. Thank you to those of you who are already helping us to keep creating. Our charity for this season is Seafall. This is a UK-based charity helping more people to reconnect to the ocean and waterways for the benefit of their mental health and to nurture stewardship of our blue spaces. The word Seafall is derived from being mindful of the sea, mindful of its importance, of the way it feels to be there and of what we can do to help preserve and protect it. We chose this charity as we strongly support their mission and goals. Check out the support section on our website to find out more. Don't forget to look out for our next episode next Wednesday, wherever you get your podcasts. If we aren't there, let us know. And don't forget, step outside and get wild about conservation. Bye. How do you get wild? Watching wildlife documentaries. Wildflower painting. Diving. Wild swimming. Ocean watching. Rock climbing. Bird watching. Listening to podcasts. Hill walks. Visiting a wildlife charity.